The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and welcome to Episode 38 of the Pennsylvania Project. As you may know, here at the Pennsylvania Project, our vision is a better Pennsylvania. To achieve that vision, our mission is to boldly showcase the political, cultural, and environmental challenges facing contemporary Pennsylvania and to relentlessly pursue correct solutions. But more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem. I-M-A-O, that is. We have a normal episode planned for today for a change. And like all episodes of the Pennsylvania Project, it's divided into three parts. You, them, and me. Part one is all about you, your questions, your opinions, your solutions, your whatevers. And rather than a call-in format, we are an email-in format. So if you have something to say, you can contact us at PennsylvaniaProject.com. And you can always listen there, too, or on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast provider may be. Today, for the you part, we have the remaining questions from our Facebook page that we started in episode 37. And they've just backed up. And we got a whole bunch of them there today. I'm not even sure how many of them we're going to get to. We got stuff about safety inspections. We got stuff about, I don't know, the LCB. We got charter schools, all kinds of cool stuff. After that, part two is all about them, where each episode we host a guest to help us showcase the political, cultural, and or environmental issues facing Pennsylvania. Our guest today is all environmental. He's Matt Wenrick, an environmental engineer, here to talk about the environment of all things. After the you part comes part three of the Pennsylvania Project, the me part, where it'll be my turn, your caster, Ken Krawchuk. I'll be focusing on some particular issue that really sticks in my craw. And today, I'm going to be looking at top 10 libertarian lists. Top 10 this, top 10 the other thing. And throughout our show, as is our long-established custom, we'll be featuring a Pennsylvania Toastmaster to serve as narrator to read our live commercials. Today we have Dan Klein, a member of the Picket Post Toastmasters Club in Berwyn, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Pennsylvania Project, Dan. Thanks for having me. Let me ask you, I always ask people, what do you like about being a Toastmaster? Oh my goodness. I didn't realize I'd have to answer that question on the spot. Um, well, you're a Toastmaster. You well, of course, that. yes, I should. No, I should. I, I guess I, I thought I was just reading ads, but um, <laughs> no, um, I, I just enjoy being able to increase my ability to communicate. I think that's that's a big um, big plus for me and, and having to do it on the fly. I think I... I always think of myself, and a lot of people say, "Oh, you're you're, you're really good at that." And I'm like, actually, I'm not. I I really need to, you know, get an improvement there. And and honestly, the club that I'm in, I've really kind of found a home there. And and that's mm-hmm. there's a social aspect to it as well. So I really really enjoy that. Agreed. Well, glad to have you here. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Thanks for having me. We also have with us a second Toastmaster, as is another one of our customs, to help us read and respond to whatever comes into our mailbag and to join the discussions with our guest. The role we call cohort. And today's cohort is no stranger to the Pennsylvania Project because he was our narrator in episode 37. He's a member of the Climb Toastmasters and the Trenton State Prison Toastmasters Gavel Club, Glenn Friesman. Thanks, Ken. Thanks Welcome for having me back. Thank you very much for having me back. It's a pleasure. Yeah, but you you were the one who did this. You, you volunteered to be cohort? I did. You know, my, uh, my father taught me that 100% of the things you don't ask for, you will not get. <laughs> it's generally true. But why would you want to do this? Heaven forbid. 
Uh, you know, I've been a I've been a long term libertarian since Irv Homer sat in this chair <coughs> thirty years ago. That's right. Irv Homer was a libertarian talk show host on WWDB. Yes, I am the first one since he left the airwaves. Uh, yeah, it's that's a big gap and one that I'm glad you finally filled. Big shoes. It boggles the mind. Boggles the mind. As Irv would say. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the top of the show, I mentioned how questions have been piling up on our Facebook page, and there's been no time to answer them. We got some of them out of the way last episode, but let's see how many we can squeeze in today, and I'll bet you we're not going to get them all. The topic from our Facebook page was short and not so sweet. The question was, what bothers you about Pennsylvania? And here's a whole slew of what people said. Let's take them in the order they came in. It's only fair. Glenn... Do me a favor, take the lead and read some. And remember, our goal here is not just to complain, but to explore solutions. All right, Ken. Uh, Kevin Kanabi says, vehicle safety inspection, completely unnecessary and a waste of money. Waste? What a counterintuitive suggestion, Kevin. How dare you? How dare you eliminate safety? But you know, it's funny. I hadn't looked at this close. And I ran for governor, and I, I should know more about this. But when I looked at the data... Do you know that 70% of the states do not have safety inspections? It's a big number. 35 out of 50 states don't do it. And I thought, why? I mean, it's just intuitive, right? We should have safety inspections. But it turns out the Libertas Institute did a study and found, quote, there is no conclusive evidence that vehicle safety inspections reduce mechanical error car accidents, unquote. Now, I thought, uh, Libertas, Libertas Institute, meh, maybe they have a finger on the scale or something here. So I went, and I went to the government. You can always trust the government. <laughs> <laughs> the Gen Government Accountability Office, GAO, their watchdog, they looked at it, and they conducted a review and said, quote, of studies regarding safety inspections and their effect, if any, on roadway fatalities and injuries, they discovered conflicting results among the studies, suggesting that an absence of verifiable data exists to justify mandatory inspection programs. They didn't say there was evidence to get rid of it. They said no evidence exists to justify having them. Reminds me of that CDC study on gun violence. Did you see that? The CDC said, we found no evidence that these feel-good gun laws have any impact on reducing gun violence. <laughs> that's, that's the way the government talks. We didn't find any evidence. So there's no evidence that these inspection, safety inspection laws do any good. Of course, the car mechanics, they're all behind us. Oh, no, we got to have safety inspections. No surprise. I'm <laughs> and, of course, they got their horror stories. Oh, a guy came in here, his ball joints were falling off and everything. But, you know, who's right? Is the GAO right? Is the state or the other guys right? Because it's true. I mean, when I'm done with my cars, they go to the junkyard. No question about it. When I'm done, they're done. But the last one, it was all rusted out. The, t the tops of the struts were rusted out. I hit one good bump, and it would just, like, pop through the hood and things like that. <laughs> so the safety inspection actually did me some good. So you, I, mean, I'm, I was in the middle. I said, well, it's, it's got to be something good because it's going to catch people like me who drive rust buckets until they fall apart. But then there's no evidence that it really does any good. So I was thinking, there's got to be a middle ground. And we're all about solutions here at the Pennsylvania Project. And I thought, there's got to be somebody between big brother government and anything goes on the highways, anarchy on the roads. So I was thinking, how about getting the people involved who have the biggest economic stake in all of this? Insurance companies. So 
Suppose insurance company said, you don't have to get your car inspected, safety inspection, but if you do, you get a cheaper rate. And if you don't, you get a higher deductible. That way the market would decide where the best spot was for this. Not the government, not anarchy, automotive anarchy, but the people who care the most. Of course, there's a secondary thing about people getting killed, which is never any fun. But if you're driving a rust bucket and your mechanic tells you, hey, dude, the struts are going to pop through the hood any day now and you ought to do something about it, well, I'm at fault then. I could be criminally liable. So it's up to me. If my car is in good shape, I couldn't be criminally liable. I could get a cheaper insurance rate, and we don't need government involved at all. And 35 states agree with at least half of that. <laughs> I could go on longer about this, but we got a mechanic coming on in a couple of, I guess it's going to be about episode 42 or 43. He's on the list. And we're going to be talking about that and about the uh, I'll stop there. There's all kinds of things I could say about that. So I'll save, I'll save the rest of it for then. Otherwise, I'll be going on all day. And we're already behind on the Facebook questions. Glenn, what else we got? All right, we'll go on to the next one. Elizabeth Jaggers Davis says, the continued fight against school vouchers and charter cyber charter schools that are doing more and better for less money than the public school districts of our largest cities from which parents have already removed their children. Common cores also known as PA cores, expectations with grade-level benchmarks that are not calibrated to correspond to the student's actual age-based developmental capabilities. Thank you for that one, Elizabeth. That's a great question. And we already took a good swat at this. Out on the streets back in episode 28. If you haven't listened to it, it's great because our guest was Veronica Joyner, she is the founder and chief administrative officer of the Mathematics, Civics, and Sciences Charter School of Philadelphia. She's in North Philly, up on North Broad Street, inner city. Do you know what her graduation rate is? I'm, I'm going to go with 100%. 100%. Do you know what her college admission rate is? 99%. Close, 98%. 98%. And the other ones are going to the trades, so, they wow. don't, so they're not going to college anyway. Even better. <laughs> and no surprise, she's persecuted mercilessly by the Philadelphia School Board. They keep cutting her budget, taking money away from her, giving her a hard time, permits and all that stuff. Great lady, Ms. Joyner. It was a great show too. Take a listen, episode 28. I'm not gonna go into all the details, but I think that her statistics speak for themselves. An inner city school with a 100% graduation rate. And there's a line of people waiting to get in. Surprise, charter schools. Right, right. I'm not a huge fan of charter schools, but I'm, a, I'm certainly a huge fan of Ms. Joyner. Common Core, though, we covered that one a long time ago, back in episode six. Here we are, what, we're in 38 now. Common Core is another one of those one-size-fits-none micromanagement solutions by the federal government meddling what happens in your local school, just what you need. In case you don't know, Common Core is a curriculum dictated by the feds that they hold it over our heads saying, if you want our tax dollars, you're going to do this. I guess they're my tax dollars, not their tax dollars. Yeah, exactly right. Got to get it right. <laughs> now, I got to admit, Common Core is well-intentioned. They're trying to define a nationwide standard curriculum. But, of course, that means it takes no account of regional interests, cultural differences, student interests, career goal interests. I like that word. I make up words that go along. Student interests or career goals. Pushes one topic or another. Pushes out one topic for another, especially compared to the private schools. A lot of things that 
lot of people just don't want. Parents might prefer a different prioritization, but no, common core is common. Of course, it encourages national assessments, teaching to the test, lowest common denominator curriculum, and it's not targeted to each particular student or their abilities. Of course, I don't think it should be dictated by the federal government, even the state government. We should let parents decide, not some bureaucrat or politician. Remember the other ones? There are other ones before this. Outcomes-based education. Oh, yeah. Same thing. The outcome they wanted was to teach to the test. Synthetic division. I learned that once, and I promptly forgot about it. No child left behind. I hear that's being left behind these days, too. Where are all these things now? You know, Pennsylvania tried Common Core a number of years ago. They abandoned it. Pennsylvania gave it up. They found it was too expensive, too rigid, too reliant on standardized tests. And a lot of people thought it was just another fad experimenting on our kids. Well, at least at least they had good intentions. But we know it's paved with good intentions, don't we? You know what I think we should do with Common Core? I think we should make it uncommon. I say throw it out with the taxes. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started about that one. We, I think we talked about that one last time, too. And looking at the clock, I don't think we're going to get because the next one I'm looking at, this is the LCB question. we got several people asking that one. And you know what? We'll, we'll pop this as the top of the show, top of 30, okay. 39. So. So let me ask you about Common Core. Sure. Don't you think that ultimately takes every single person in the entire country and they want to make them be the little robot that is all exactly the same, that it takes out all the creativity, all the humanistic parts of what our children were Mm -hmm. by saying, no, none of those things matter. This is what matters. Agreed. Agreed, because that's what I said before. It, it stops you from doing things you want to do and forces you into things that you do want to do. I could point to my own education. I mean, I had my first job as a computer programmer when I was in, a senior in high school, the age of 17. And in college, they're teaching me things like comparative mathematics, history of architecture. I mean, say, oh, you need this to be a well-rounded person. Well, thank you. I'm a geek. <laughs> Let me have my geekness. And so I was part-time through college as a computer programmer for the Department of the Navy. Proud of that. And I couldn't wait till I got out. Boy, did I cheer. <laughs> <laughs> On that cheering note, that's going to have to do it for the you portion of episode 38. We're going to pause for this information, and when we return, we're going to be visiting with today's guest, our environmental engineer, Matt Wenrick. Did you hear the latest news? Almost two-thirds of all federal spending now goes to pay for the welfare state. More than $2.2 trillion, which just about equals federal income. Do you realize what that means? Virtually all tax revenue is now being consumed by the welfare state. But how do we rein in that runaway spending before it destroys America? The answer? The separation of society and state. That's the premise of the new novel, Atlas Snubbed, an unsanctioned parody sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Snubbed presents a workable alternative to the welfare state as we know it. Atlas Snubbed expertly extends Rand's epic story of a looter's world snubbed by the men of the mind, bringing to life a crumbling post-apocalyptic world where no one need ask who is John Galt, because now they know. Atlas Snubbed, 
available at all online bookstores or through atlassnubbed.com. Read it today before it's too late. Here's an interesting question. What do you think of these three ideas? Number one, people at all times have an inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their government as they think proper. Number two, juries shall have the right to determine the law as well as the facts. Number three, the right of the citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state shall not be questioned. Question, do these words sound like they're something taken from a Hollywood political thriller? Well, they're not. They're all direct quotes from Article 1 of the Pennsylvania Constitution. Everyone's heard of the United States Constitution, but have you ever heard of the Pennsylvania Constitution? Have you ever read it? But most importantly, was it ever taught to you in school? If you're like virtually all Pennsylvanians, the answers are likely to be no, no, and no. Well, it's long past time we change those answers to yes, yes, and yes. And you have a crucial part to play in making that come to pass. As you know, we here at the Pennsylvania Project are all about solutions. So we've authored a petition demanding that the Pennsylvania Constitution be taught to our children. It's up on our website, pennsylvaniaproject.com. If you believe it's important for our children to know how our state government works, please add your name to the growing list of signers. And every time we accumulate another batch of signatures, we'll send a copy of the petition to the governor, the Pennsylvania Board of Education, and each and every one of the 501 school districts in Pennsylvania, asking them right now to start teaching our children the Pennsylvania Constitution. So please sign the petition at pennsylvaniaproject.com. Do it now while it's on top of your mind. Get your friends to sign it, your neighbors, your coworkers. The alternative is yet another generation that has never heard of, let alone read, the Pennsylvania Constitution. And people wonder why no one votes anymore. Scary words. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here again, and welcome to the them portion of episode 38 of the Pennsylvania Project, where we'd like to host a guest to help us showcase the political, cultural, and or environmental issues facing Pennsylvania. Our guest today is all environment. He's an environmental engineer, Matt Wenrick. He's a soil and groundwater remediation guy. He likes to get his hands dirty. Stormwater management, sustainability, cleaning up after old oil companies, all kinds of other things I was listening to him talking about. Welcome to the Pennsylvania Project, Matt. Hi, Ken. It's uh, good to be here. Yeah, I would say so, too. Now, let me start in the beginning. What, what's your interest in this? How did you get even I, – I woke up when I was a kid and I said, I want to be a computer programmer. Did you wake up and say, I want to be an environmental engineer? No, and uh, I definitely did not just fall into this this realm. Um, I realized I was good at math. I was good at science. Uh, I went for a general engineering degree at the, the local community college. Um, started getting A's and B's and scholarships, and I went on to Drexel University where I got my bachelor's and master's in environmental engineering. Uh-huh. Um, good, good school. And I was able to apply the, the math and science to uh, everyone and everywhere around us. Uh, I hunt, I fish, I love the outdoors. Really? Yeah. And We, uh, we had a hunter on, I guess it was back in three or four episodes ago. I got my list here. Episode 34, we had a guest on. He was an expert on the hunting and the hunting laws and everything. And my in-laws, huge, huge hunting family. In fact, I got a story about that, but I'll, I'll wind up stealing all your time. And Drexel's a great school. A lot of our Toastmasters who've been on the show here have come from Drexel University's Toastmaster Club. Are you a Toastmaster? No. Ah, you should be. No. Uh, I'm a pretty stereotypical engineer. I'm <laughs> slightly introverted, if anything, and uh, but I, I do enjoy giving speeches to people. Uh, it, 
It's very exciting, uh, but also very nerve-wracking when 300 people are, are staring back at you. Um, <laughs> That's what we do at Toastmasters. I, mean, I used to get asthma attacks if I tried to speak in public. Truth. Yeah. Now look at me. Right? It's rough, but once it's over, it's yeah. exhilarating. Yeah. Once you get past that, that's the way it is. Now, when I was talking to you before, just to get an idea of where you were coming from, I learned all kinds of new words, things I never heard before. Yeah. Well, first, some of it is like soil and groundwater remediation that I said is part of your intro. What does that mean? What are you remediating? Um, so I tell people I'm an environmental engineer, and they immediately go to solar panels and wind farms and green buildings. Mm -hmm. well, solar panel, panels and wind farms, those are electrical engineers. Green buildings are architectural. Um, uh, soil and groundwater remediation, uh, it's typically dealing with not, not an immediate spill, not something that just happened. The tanker didn't just fall over, and they have to clean it up real quick. These are uh, older refineries and brownfields, um, chemical plants, where stuff has leaked in small amounts in the ground over many, many years. Um, there, there could be some, some free product, which is the chemical that has not broken down yet. Um, but these chemicals also exist in, in vapor phase. Uh, they exist in dissolved groundwater phase, and they adsorb to soils. Um, so a lot of times after these decades of these contaminants sitting in the soil uh, through it, rainwater infiltration, groundwater uh, seasonal rise and fall, um, these very small concentrations of dissolved contaminants um, tend to get away from the site. Uh -huh. uh, they can go hundreds of feet deep, miles and miles out. Um, you know, we, we look at... Um, not, not my team specifically doing the remediation, but the teams that do the phase one investigations, the phase two investigations, where they're looking at um, what the property has, has historically been used for, where they're underground storage tanks, uh, and they, they go in, they take soil borings, take soil samples, air samples, groundwater samples, uh, and they, they kind of delineate where the contamination is. Um, and then... Well, wait a minute. You just said it can go hundreds of feet this way, miles that way. Yes. How, do you, how do you get a... A circle around it say this is how far it's gone uh it, it typically takes quite a few years you go in and years yeah you're like oh i knew there was an underground storage tank here i'm going to take a soil sample starting there it came back hot uh, i'm going to work farther out take four samples or so around that area maybe a couple where i know the groundwater is going mm -hmm. um comes back hot you keep doing that and you keep putting out reports and you finally come up with this map of generally where the contamination is and then, then it's time to remediate. Let's, uh -huh. let's knock it out of there. Uh, so that's when my team comes in. Um, we, we remediate groundwater and soil through a variety of methods. Um, the easiest and most effective being excavation, which I don't really consider remediation because you're digging it out, you're sending it off to a treatment plant, or you're sending it to a landfill. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't do any good. Right. Uh, so we are able to remediate through... Um, either chemical means um, by uh, oxidation or reduction, you're changing the state of the, the contaminant. Uh -huh. um, there's biological means, which also reduces or oxidizes, which is just the exchange of electrons. Um, but you're using uh, natural um, microbial animals as, <laughs> bugs as we call them. <laughs> Um, as, as the, the catalyst for that reaction. Do you ever have to send somebody in to clean up the bugs when you're done? They, 
they clean up themselves because they're using the contaminant as a food source. Oh, once it's gone? Yeah, you seed it. Uh, you give them everything they need to grow, which um, could be as easy as uh, uh, emulsified vegetable oil. Um, it's, it's, they just need a carbon source to grow on. Um, they eat the contamination, and then they fizzle their way out. Uh-huh. You know, when you mentioned that you had excelled in math, sciences, and things like that, and went to Drexel, which is a great engineering school, I thought, why do you need all of that? But I'm hearing it now, because you, for you to be able to figure this stuff out, you had to have a, a very wide range of technical knowledge. Yeah, uh, background for any um, engineering, uh, the, the math and science involved is incredible. Um, and, you know, you hear all these kids say, like, why do I need calculus? <laughs> That's just the start I, of it. I, I, had, I was that kid. Yeah. My, my degree's in physics, and I was going to be designing chips. That was my original goal. But by the time I got out of college, I had five years' experience as a computer programmer. Right. So I wound up doing hardware, software-type systems, operating systems, and things like that. So I never got a chance to use my calculus. But the, the courses and, and stuff you did after you took that calculus, you understood why calculus was important, even though you completely forgot mm-hmm. all the calculus, you understood the, the science behind it. Yeah, and I, st- I still use it from time to time. I have to come up with some way of doing something. Like I had to come up with a random name generator, and I found that if you had two lists that were a prime number of entries, if you crossed both of them, you could get the most unique combinations. So I have all this useless information that I use from time to time. That's just one example. But there, you, you're using it all the time. Uh, especially chemistry. Uh, there's a whole mm-hmm. lot of chemistry. Um, I mean, the, the majority of what I do is, is AutoCAD and report writing and, and just analyzing data and, and presenting it. But I have all that background where I know um, data tolerances um, that I can look at that data and not just be freaked out about it. Uh-huh. Like, oh, there's this detection of this compound. I know how bad that detection is. Mm-hmm. Um, is it is that life threatening? No. Uh, is it? Could it be? Maybe. Um, yeah, and that's another question that I always come back to. Who sets the standards? You know, I'm a big fan of Ayn Rand, and one of her favorite statements is, "By what standard?" When somebody uses any kind of a relative word, I, it always jumps out at me and I always think by what standard so when you say this is dangerous this is not dangerous certain levels who sets these standards um, and this is not my specialty because I, I just somebody else sets the standards somebody else tells me hey I want to get to this standard mm-hmm. I'm like oh I can I can get you that standard for this amount of effort or we can go another uh, 20% for double the effort um, you mean you don't clean it up I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no. Um, it, it is rare at a remediation site that you will get to complete non-detect levels of every single compound. Really? Yeah. Um, and uh, so my, my boss has this this business model. It's, picture a triangle, uh, and you have good, fast, cheap uh-huh. at each one of the points. I've seen it. You pick two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, everybody has a price. Some people... If you want that 90% reduction, that's going to be one price. If you want 99% reduction, that's going to be double the price. You want 99.9% reduction? <laughs> a lot it. of people don't have that money. Even huge businesses do not have that money with, that they can 
um, give to that. Um, is that why you think a, a spot like Willow Grove Naval Station will never ever be redeveloped? Because it's just it's too big a swatch. It's too much stuff going on in that property, and it's just too you know too too vast, too many, too much governmental. Like that's been around for a long time, and it doesn't seem like it's ever going to go anywhere. Yeah, and uh, so Willow Grove Air Force Station. I, I'm actually a couple miles downstream of of that area. <laughs> Oops. Uh, Aqua, Pennsylvania, recently, I mm-hmm. was talking to you about this earlier, uh-huh. uh, put it on a town hall in, in one of my neighboring neighborhoods, and I went to it, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. Uh, so one of the things that's happening um, is w- what we still call an emerging contaminant. It's not like uh, PCE, which is dry cleaner fluid from the 60s, or brake cleaner. Uh, everybody knows what that is. It's been proven over and over again that is an, it is a carcinogen. Um, what we're dealing with now is poly and perfluorinated alkyl substances. Um, the data is really just relatively starting to be released on this. Mm. There, I mean, there's, there's still a couple hundred studies that are proving it one way or another, um, but there's not thousands and thousands of studies that prove it uh, beyond a, a reasonable doubt. And then whatever that limit is, that's a, that's a safe risk um, that's still an argument too. Um, the EPA mm-hmm. set a standard of 70 parts per trillion, which is one part per trillion is, is seriously a drop in an Olympic sized swimming pool. That's a very, very low concentration. Uh, well, recently, maybe last year, the CDC came out with an even stri- more stringent recommendation. And then the states, uh, have the ultimate say on what that standard's gonna be. Jersey just, which Jersey usually does, uh, just because of its population density, went above and beyond, and I think set a standard of 14 parts per trillion. Wow, can you measure down that low? Um, you can now. Uh, and that that's another, uh, I don't wanna say hindrance, but it, it does not help things. I think maybe, you know, 10 years ago, maybe you couldn't measure that low. We didn't have the technology to measure things that low. Uh, so th- there's a difference between non-detect and absolute zero. Mm-hmm. I don't like to say absolute zero. I just like to say it's undetectable. <laughs> um, and that was really the point of my question. Yeah. How, how far down can you go? Is, you know, when you're talking about parts per trillion, that's a lot of zeros. Yeah. And, um, but for all intents and purposes, when something says 99.99% reduction, it's, it is. Yeah. It means one out of 10,000 people are going to die. Anyway, my guest today is environmental engineer Matt Wenrick. I'm your caster, Ken Krawchuk, and you're listening to episode 38 of the Pennsylvania Project. We'll be right back after this information. Thinking about getting your first tattoo? Maybe you're ready to add to that sleeve you started or cover up that one regretful choice? Put Sam C. and his team of artists at Iron Will Tattoo Club in Glenside, PA at the top of your list. The team at Iron Will has plenty of designs to choose from. They can create an original design or work with the design that you, you provide. Call 267-893-7625 today to schedule your free consultation. That's 267-8-W-E-R-O-C-K or visit them on Instagram at Iron Will Tattoo Club.
Hey, Glenn Friesman here, cohort on the Pennsylvania Project. You know, it's easy to find a high-paying job, at least for some people it is. Employers are begging for competent leaders who know how to communicate effectively. But do you... Those, but do those words describe you? Competent leader communicates effectively? If not, or even if they do, you may want to consider joining Toastmasters. The mission of Toastmasters is to provide a supportive environment for learning communication and leadership skills. But does it really work? Hey, look at me. I joined Toastmasters and I'm on the radio. <laughs> and I have the perfect face for radio. So turn your life around like I have. Visit Toastmasters.org and contact the club near you. Visitors are always welcome to be sure to mention my name, Glenn Friesman. The future is anxiously awaiting competent leaders who know how to communicate effectively. You can be that leader. It all starts at Toastmasters.org. Are you a small business owner always looking for referrals? Do you have a streamlined approach to generating new referrals? Contact Stephen Worley to learn a f- to learn the fast, easy way to generate new referrals. Stephen has an all-inclusive system that will help you generate an extra five to ten customers per week without spending a single dollar on ads. You won't have to create a website, have pictures taken, or write a single ad. Stephen will take the headache out of the process. Contact him at stephenworley.com. That's Stephen with a V, W-E-R-L-E-Y.com. Do you have the financial freedom that you imagine you would have? At AJ Financial Freedom, we are dedicated to serving you while helping you achieve your financial goals. We offer planning and investment advice on everything from college and retirement planning to a rollover 401k. Please call 866-383-6899 to learn more. The top priority at AJ Freedom Financial has always been and always will be our clients. Call AJ Freedom Financial today to talk to a qualified professional. 866-383-6899. AJ Freedom Financial, helping Pennsylvanians achieve financial freedom from the man. Securities and investment advisory services are offered through Gradient Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Insurance products and services are offered through AJ Freedom Financial. AJ Freedom Financial is not affiliated with Gradient Securities, LLC. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here again, and welcome back to episode 38 of the Pennsylvania Project. My guest is still here, environmental engineer Matt Wenrick. Didn't run out the door. Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) I'm always surprised. I want to come back to what I was saying just before the break. You you do the best job you can cleaning up, but it's still still a mess. Uh, So for every project site is different, especially when you're dealing with the environment, um, there's no, there's no perfect uh, cookie cutter uh, remediation. Yeah, I'm learning that. Uh, everybody has a different type of soil. Everybody has a different type of groundwater. Uh, and one of the main things we do when when we're doing in, in investigations uh, is a risk assessment. Um, we want to know, hey, if if that contaminant just sits there, is it affecting anybody? Is it um, creating a vapor intrusion? Uh, is it getting away in the groundwater and affecting drinking water wells? Is it popping up in surface water somewhere? And uh, and this is what the the EPA does with their Superfund sites is they prioritize. They have a whole list. It's a giant list, and they prioritize them based on on risk. Um, and they, as the money develops and the the effort and the resources are there, they they knock them out. Uh huh. It's kind of like me when it's coming close to payday. Mm-hmm. 
figure out what you can afford to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, many of these, many of these projects will will, will take uh, will have various stages. Um, one of my favorite projects that I work on, uh, we did an initial uh, delineation. We found out where the contaminant was. Uh, they had monitoring wells all over the site and many down gradient and neighboring properties. Uh, hundreds of soil borings. They, they got a, a perfect idea where that contamination was. And they started by excavating the, the higher concentrations of the soil. Just a small surgical excavation, get rid of the, the bulk of it. You wait a couple months, uh, every three months or so, you take more samples and more samples. You see if it's, it's working its way out on its own, if uh, nature is taking over. We, do have, we, do, um, we are allowed to do monitored natural attenuation if those contaminants are degrading on their own through natural bacteria. Um, that, that's an acceptable remediation. Uh, but we did come back and we did a thermal remediation, which is by far one of my favorites. <laughs> we actually put all these rods down the ground. They heat the soil up to well over 400 degrees, and it volatilizes all the contaminant mass in that area. And then as it rises, the vapors rise to the surface, they collect them, they treat the, the vapors with, with uh, carbon, and that's the end of it. And the place smells like burnt worms yes. for weeks. Uh, it's very, very energy intensive, um, but uh, the only waste generated really is uh, spent carbon, which can be sent back for regeneration. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and then we had one final step after that. That was the, the soil remedy. Uh, well, we still had this groundwater that had lower concentrations than any of the soil did. Uh, and that had been knocked down significantly by the soil, soil remedy. But we went back and while the soil was still warm, uh, we added some bacteria and a, a carbon source to give it a little polishing. Mm-hmm. So you're cooking cakes too. <laughs> I, now listen to all this, and this is some dangerous stuff coming down here. Is, is there a personal risk to you being on, on these sites? No. Uh, I operate under um, OSHA HASWOPER standards. I don't know what that means. You know, I've, I'm just making a list of these things I've never heard of before. You mentioned down gradient. I can guess what that means. Thermal remediation, that's new to me. Biocumulative. <laughs> you said this other word. I don't even know what it is. Volatilize or something? Volatilize, yeah. Yeah. That, that's the process of uh, going from a dissolved or solid phase to a vapor phase. Volatilization. Isn't that uh, sublimation, going from solid to a vapor? Uh, sublimation, yeah. That, that's skipping the, uh, well... So that's like snow, where it just kind of disappears without melting. Uh huh. That's sublimation. Uh, volatilization is uh, well, it's it's a liquid, or it's adsorbed to soil, and then it it goes to vapor form. Uh huh. See, I got a chance to get my physics degree first time this week. <laughs> Sublimate. Anyway, I interrupted you again. I was talking. We we're talking about personal risk to yourself and you say there really isn't a you're using somebody's standards and that's where we're going off on the tangent yeah i mean uh, a lot of the sites we deal with everything's contained underground uh as as the engineer i'm not living there i'm my basement uh is not being uh, these vapors are not getting into my basement i'm not drinking the water there uh and we do lots of air monitoring while we're doing work especially the excavations um and uh a lot, of, a lot of sites I'm working on are not that hazardous that it's not Chernobyl that I'm working at. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So they may be super fun, but they're not, not super 
Yeah. And, uh, and I, I've had, you know, uh, my initial 40 hours of HASWOPER training, and then I have to get recertified eight hours every year. Uh, we have an annual physical where we get blood tests on just to make sure there is not um, any effects. That's good. Yeah. It's one thing I like about being a programmer is that I really get nothing of that. Although I have been on some interesting sites. I did a steel mill a number of years ago. That was, that was frightening at times. It's just a very hot, hot place. So I'm glad to hear that. It's it's not. Are you, do you go around like in, in the white hazmat suit or you just like walk up there with your timberlands or something? Uh, if we're dealing with a, a soil issue that might have um, metals, contaminants then it's the white Tyvex uh -huh. if there are if there are vapors that uh, depending on what the vapors are what the contaminant is um, that you sustain a certain level over a certain amount of time I have to shave and the respirator mask goes on uh, he's got a beard by the way if you can't see yeah I I do not like shaving um, <laughs> I, I can commiserate with you on that because I, I don't shave I got one little hair on one side, two on the other, a little bit on the bottom. I figure at this point in my life, I have saved three full months of my life not having to shave. <laughs> You're in the same position. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I'm more at risk of uh, frostbite most of the time than I am inhaling some horrible vapors. Really? So, yeah, I try to keep it warm. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is it all chemical-type stuff, or do you do, do any, like, human pollution? Like, oh, this used to be an outhouse here or something like that. Uh, I do not. No, <laughs> <laughs> but it does get done. You just that 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 could be an aspect of environmental uh, uh, engineering, um, biological remediation. Yeah, there you go. I'm learning the lingo. Do you deal anything with the with the legal side of it? For example, one thing that I talked about when I was running for governor, one of my planks was to change the laws to treat pollution as a trespass. And that way you'd have all the remedies that we use against trespassers, we could use them against polluters. Which means we could get police assistance and having them stop, we can get court injunctions, uh, we could file lawsuits, get them pay for the cleanup and things like that. But it's, it's amazing that it didn't happen. And, and it was funny because during one of my campaigns, the Republican actually came out and said, Ken's right, you know, we ought to do this. It's like, wow, that's one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I do not personally uh, get involved too much of the, the law side, of the environmental law side. Um, mm -hmm. But I know that um, a significant amount of our work does come sometimes straight from attorneys. Um, and uh, like either the, the company that we're working for, we, we go through their attorney, um, we, we invoice them, we send them our, all of our documentation, they get our reports and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, that, that's a major driver for um, what we do. Do you end up in court testifying and stuff, or just uh, paperwork is enough? Again, not me, uh, but we do have teams at my company that um, specialize in that. They specialize in litigation. Mm -hmm. uh, we or public speaking, like Toastmasters. Yeah, uh, we have um, expert witnesses all the time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Fascinating stuff. I, like I said, I've been learned. I've been writing down all these new words. I learned the whole thing. It, the big thing I learned is that when you're done, it's not really done. That there's still still something there. Pollution is forever. It's a heavy duty thing. You know, Matt. 
we're just about out of time here. That always get, yeah, you shake your head like that. Yeah, it always goes quickly. It goes quick. Yeah. There's never enough time. Is there anything else you can cover that you want to throw in there? Maybe a website you want to send people to, or, or do you have a favorite puppy mill you want to talk about? Or <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I mean, the biggest uh, thing I see every day, like I'll, I'll be out in public uh, on sites. Some of these sites are. Uh, blatantly in front of people and they stop and they ask me like am I at risk and I'm like I'm here all the time and I'm okay um, but all this stuff is public knowledge and when I say uh, perchloroethylene people panic they don't know <laughs> what that is and I don't expect them to but all this stuff is public knowledge um, and there's a variety of, of websites um, mostly government that all they do is, is state facts uh, they try to educate Mm -hmm. uh, they, they try to provide the information um, that can be absorbed by the general public. Um, and if you go on the EPA Region 3 website or uh, PADP, um, Delaware River Basin Commission, mm -hmm. uh, Philadelphia Water Department is, has a great website. Yep. Uh, and they, they have some of the, the best water treatment in, uh, in the country. I know some people who drink Philadelphia tap water who would disagree with that statement. <laughs> I think it's great. I do too. I was born and raised in Roham in North Philly. Maybe that's why I still love it. It's just, I get sentimental about it. That's uh, going to have to do it. Okay. That's going to have to wrap it up for the then portion of our show. My thanks again to our guest, environmental engineer, Matt Wenrick. I learned an awful lot. We're going to pause for this information. And when we return, I'm going to be ranting about something that really sticks in my craw. Top 10 Libertarian Lists. The following is a commercial announcement. Hey Dan, how's it going? Eh, could be better. Why? What's the matter? I just found a great job, but I can't take it. Why not? Well, they want me to go in as a 1099 contractor. So? So what, so what about all the taxes? Federal taxes, state taxes, this tax, that tax. I really have better things to do than figuring out the tax laws and filling out all those forms. I'm a libertarian, remember? Well, then you need Amendment 16. Hey, it's the damn 16th Amendment that got me into this predicament in the first place. No, no, no. Amendment 16, the invoicing service. They'll invoice your client for the hours and expenses you report to them. And when your client pays them, they pay you. Minus all required state and federal taxes. It's that easy. One call does it all. And they'll even have an accountant do your personal taxes for you come April Fool's Day. I mean, come April 15th. And they take care of all the taxes? All the forms? Yep. And they can pass along certain tax breaks, too. Sounds perfect. Where do I find them? On the web, of course, at amendment16.com, with 16 spelled out. That's amendment-s-i-x-t-e-e-n.com. One call does it all. You've been a registered libertarian for years, voted for libertarians even longer, and lived by libertarian principles all your life. Now it's time to take the next step and become a dues-paying member of the Libertarian Party of Pennsylvania. Keep abreast of the March Toward Liberty in Pennsylvania, take an active role in making it happen, maybe even consider running for a politi local political office yourself. It all starts with becoming a dues-paying member of the Libertarian Party of Pennsylvania. It's easy, <coughs> fast, and only $20 a year. So visit lppa.org to sign up today. That's lppa.org. Do it today. A freer future is waiting. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here again, and welcome to the me portion of episode 38 of the Pennsylvania Project, where I get to rant a bit about something that really sticks in my craw. Today, it's the, those top 
10 libertarian lists. Tons of them. Some of them date back pre-internet. That's how old they are. They're cute. They're funny. Some of them are insulting. But, you know, the ones that really stick in my craw are the ones that are obscure. The most egregious example I can think of is the top 10 libertarian books. You think I'm kidding? This really reveals the soul of the Libertarian Party. Here's what adamsmith.org says. Number one, Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. Constitution of Liberty by Friedrich Hayek. Road to Serfdom, Friedrich Hayek. Two Treatises on Civil Government by John Locke. On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. Human Action by Ludwig von Mises, or excuse me, Mises. Spirit of the Laws by, check this out, Charles de Sacondat, Baron de Montesquieu. Anarchy, State, and Utopia by Robert Nozick. And Open Societies and Its Enemies by Karl Popper. And number 10 from adamsmith.org is The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. <laughs> I'm surprised it wasn't number one. Not exactly a New York Times bestseller list, is it? You know, it's with recommended readings like that, it's no wonder the libertarians aren't gaining more ground in the ballot box. Those books are a pack of snoozers, if you ask me, and I'm a libertarian. You know, personally, I started reading eight of those, and I've dozed off before finishing even one of them. The only one that I ever quote is from John Locke's second treatise, primarily because of the fatal flaw he introduced in his ideal commonwealth. I'm not going to talk about that. The details are in my novel, Atlas Snubbed. It's near the end of it, but, you know, maybe I'll bring that back. That's going to, John Locke sticks in my craw. We'll bring him back. Top 10 libertarian movies. You think that might be more accessible, more interesting? (laughs) Think again, we're libertarians. According to one of the most prominent libertarians, David Bowes, B-O-A-Z, who probably read all those top 10 snoozer books, here are his choices for the top 10 libertarian movies. Number one, 1776. What could be more libertarian than a movie about writing the Declaration of Independence? Wake me up when it's over, huh? Number two, Amazing Grace, about a slave trader who is converted to Christianity, which are two very libertarian evocations, I must add. Not. And by the way, it's about the guy who wrote that song, Amazing Grace. Maybe bagpipes will bring more people to the Libertarian Party. I don't know. Number three, Amistad. I'm probably mispronouncing that. I never saw it. It's about a ship full of Africans who turn up in New England in 1839. The question was, are they slaves or not? And of course, there's a huge legal battle that goes on all through the movie. Can you imagine? Lawyers arguing law. If you've ever been to a Libertarian Party convention and heard us arguing over bylaws, you'd probably say, yeah, that's a great Libertarian movie. Not. Not a good movie. Number four, and I saw this on a couple people's list, Dallas Buyers Club. It's a relatively recent one. How's this for a plot? A homophobic working-class Texan learns he has AIDS and is given 30 days to live. So what does he do? He turns into a drug smuggler and starts selling drugs to gay men. Sounds familiar. Oh, quick. What part of that is libertarian? I don't know. The homophobes, the AIDS, smuggling drugs. Maybe the bylaws arguments would be more fun. I don't know. Anyway, number five, East-West. The New York Times called it, quote, the grim reality of life and death in the police state. That's libertarian? <laughs> number three, sorry, number six. I'm going backward. The man in the white suit. Never heard of it. A shy scientist invents a cloth that will never wear out and won't get dirty. 
I've been to a lot of libertarian conventions, and I can see the allure that this movie would have for libertarians. <laughs> and number seven, I don't know if there's a connection, my beautiful laundrette. <laughs> no, nothing to do with white suits. It's supposed to be something, an indictment of Thatcherite capitalism, according to Mr. Bose. But hard to tell who wears the white hats. For example, there's this Pakistani businessman who's throwing out another Pakistani, and somebody says, I'm surprised you're throwing out people of color. And he says, hey, I'm a professional businessman, not a professional Pakistani. I know libertarians who are like that. They're the kind who run for office and lose. <laughs> Number eight, Pacific Heights. A thriller of landlord-tenant laws where a young couple buys a house in San Francisco, rents an apartment out to the young man, he never, he never pays them, and they can't get him out. Sounds like a libertarian I know. No wonder David likes these. Number nine, Palermo Connection, about some guy who runs for mayor of New York and tries to eliminate the drug laws. The mafia is not happy about it, so he runs and hides in Sicily. Silly, I don't know. Not a smart libertarian movie. Number 10, Shenandoah. This is on a couple other lists. It's an old James Stewart movie from the Civil War. He refuses to let the state take his horses or his sons, but in the end, he goes to war. That sounds libertarian, doesn't it? Not. And Mr. Bose ends with that admonition saying, no two libertarians got the same list. Yeah, none of those would be on my list. What about movies that actually show the benefits of libertarian society? I was trying to think of one, and I couldn't. Close I came was Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And that's not really libertarian. And then there are the ones, the top ten lists, really stick in your craw, the ones that deliberately try to get your blood pumping. I call it the libertarian macho flash. It's a term I learned from Michael Emerling Cloud many years ago, where you just say what you think, dump an issue on the table, and who cares what people think? So here is a list, and I'm not going to credit this, it's on Facebook, but here are the 10 things why the libertarian vote is a wasted vote. Because should the libertarian accidentally win, you won't have your trash picked up anymore by your town's garbage man. Well, that's because we're going to privatize the trash collection. Number two, you won't be able to send your child to a government school. That's because we're going to privatize the school. See, they don't give you the other side of this. That's why I don't like it. Zoning board won't act on your complaints anymore because there isn't going to be a zoning board. Houston, Texas doesn't have a zoning board. Your sheriff won't issue a gun permit because you don't need one. Article 1, Section 21 says the right to bear arms shall not be questioned. I mean, that's just go on and on. And I'm not going to go through the rest of these because they're all just meant to be libertarian macho flash to shock people. Because what you want instead are solutions. This is the Pennsylvania Project, and we're all about solutions. And I did find one which has the top ten list of the good things about libertarian party, about being a libertarian. And it actually gives reasons. And by the way, my only complaint is it's not really a top ten list. It's a top 14 list. <laughs> and it's taken from a bad joke. Here we go. If you think 99% of the politicians give the rest of them a bad name, you might be a libertarian. If you think taxes are ridiculously high, you might be a libertarian. If you, if you think that the problem with civil servants is that too many of them are neither civil nor servants, then you might be a libertarian. If someone asks you to take a urine test and you feel like telling them you'll give them a taste test, you might be a libertarian. If you think there are way too many laws about way too many things, you might be a libertarian. 
If you believe that the Declaration of Rights in the Pennsylvania Constitution, if you believe in it, you might be a libertarian. If you believe that no one should go to jail for smoking flowers, then, then you might be a libertarian. If you believe that just about everything should be bought and sold on the open market, except politicians, you might be a libertarian. If you're glad you don't get all the government you pay for, then you might be a libertarian. If you think the Pennsylvania Constitution is the only contract with America you'll ever need, then you may be a libertarian. If the only way you can tell a left winger from a right winger is by which of their hands is in your pockets, you might be a libertarian. If you think the left is too left and the right is just plain wrong, you may be a libertarian. Number 14, if you think that polluters should pay for the environmental damage they cause, then you might be a libertarian. Now that is a top 10 list. Top 10, that is if you're thinking in base 14. I don't know, they teach number bases in schools. Beats me. And on that obscure mathematical note, that's gonna have to wrap it up for episode 38 of the Pennsylvania Project. If you have something to say, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at pennsylvaniaproject.com right after you sign our petition, that is. And you can hear us there too, as well as iTunes and other popular podcast providers. Today's episode is courtesy of Amendment 16 Limited, recorded live at the studios of WWDB Radio, broadcasting in Philadelphia at 860 on the AM dial every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. and released as a podcast every Tuesday at PennsylvaniaProject.com. Our webmaster is Stephen Worley. Marketing guru is Connor Dragotis. Featured Toastmaster narrator is Dan Klein. Featured Toastmaster cohort is Glenn Friesman. Keyboard wizard, Joe the Pag. Radio producer, Brett Kronberger. Executive producer, Mark Pizzacco. And me, your caster, Ken Krawchuk. Thanks for joining us. And remember, more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem.